When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. TG Tuesday, kicking it live with Tony Greer on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Welcome, Tony. Ash, great to be here. How you doing, man? It's great to be here as well, and great to be here with you. This is it, our first live Real Vision Daily Briefing ever. Yeah, this is exciting. Live without a net, man. Let's go. Live without a net. Let's do it. Uh, so, Tony, what are you looking at here today? Not, a, not an awesome day for semiconductors, tech. Uh, looks like NASDAQ down uh, about one spot, 88%, settling at uh, 13,633. Not an awesome day there. What are you looking at? Well, I'm following your lead, man. That was a keen eye that you have noticing that the NASDAQ is where all the weakness was centered today. Uh, it sounds like Janet Yellen, you know, lobbed a bomb across the bow of technology today when, you know, she came out of the blue saying that rates may have to rise to stop the economy from overheating, excuse me. And, um, you know, I thought that was interesting since we've got know that we've got 10 million people unemployed still from, you know, the lockdowns. And now we're suddenly, you know, recognizing that there's some overheating going on. I think it's interesting that she tried to draw the circle around the economy overheating. But I think she's really waking up and smelling the freaking coffee, Ash. You know what I mean? Like when I look at the setup and I look at the April performance and what we walked into in the beginning of May. Okay. So let's just go that, go through that really super quick. And yeah. on the Mac and on the macro side, you know, the dollar index fell over 2% in April. And that was what I was looking for to be of driving force for the power curve of the commodity trade. And look what we got in April. Lumber up 44%, iron ore up 16%, BCOM grains up 14%, copper up 12%, aluminum up 9%, oil and silver up 7%, gasoline up 6%, and even gold rallied 4%. And so it's interesting that you, you know, come out of April and this inflation theme is just pumping through your trading brain. You know, you've got guys like Jared Dillian pointing out that. Let me read you this quote. If you do think it is transitory inflation, you are on the same side of the trade as that crack team of Fed economists. Right. So it's interesting that he's pointing out now that, you know, all of a sudden the Fed continues to mention transitory inflation, but they don't have a very good track record. Right. The veterans in the market have a good track record. Guys like Grant Williams that I listen to all the time that's saying getting this right, and he's talking about the inflation trade too, is right. arguably the biggest decision you have to make with regards to your portfolio for the next 10 to 20 years. And I agree with him. So I've got all this inflation stuff ringing around in my head, and the market is reflecting that. And then all of a sudden today, we come in with this big stopper out of Janet Yellen. And that's very interesting to me and really, really sort of borderline irresponsible, mm -hmm. okay? 
you know, it was only on Sunday she just made a comment that um, she didn't believe inflation would be an issue. And I think that's why she said today to stop the economy from overheating. So she sort of did a little wordplay there. Um, but, you know, this coming after, we just heard Jerome Powell a couple of weeks ago say that we weren't even thinking about thinking about raising rates. This is a little bit insulting to the financial community who is sitting here, you know, trading and keying on the Federal Reserve. So as I see it, Ash, that's the layout, the market screaming with this inflation theme, professionals in the markets pounding the table on this inflation theme as we've been doing. And right. I think the Federal Reserve is finally waking up to the fact that this is a real story that's developing that many professionals are picking up on and they are behind the curve on. So it feels like they're playing catch up and that's what's on my mind right now, Ash. Yeah, we could do an hour on this easily. Uh, that's a very interesting statement coming from Grant Williams, a striking statement, 10 to 20 years. For those of you who aren't uh, maybe as familiar with Grant's work, uh, he's not a man given to hyperbole. That's a striking statement. Yeah, exactly. You know, and he did a special um, podcast with Dimitri Kofinis that was for Patreons only, where they talked about yeah. literally the inflation trade and the sort of demise of the dollar a little bit. And I thought it was really timely. And so I pulled that quote out. And there are several more in there with the former co-founder of Real Vision, the actual co-founder of Real Vision. Yeah. So it's interesting to listen to his perspective. And he is taking it very seriously. And I have a lot of respect for him because he's also making a call and saying that he is siding with the fact that, you know, if you've got any kind of a 10 to 20 year horizon now, the downside is that you don't adjust. Your risk is that you don't adjust for inflation. If you do and we don't get it, we'll probably be better off. But if you don't and we do get it, you're going to have a major problem. And so I think that that's what the talking heads at the Federal Reserve are trying to address with all this. Yeah. Grant's terrific, and uh, what a great conversation. Of course, my friend Dimitri Kofinas and your neighbor out there on the island. Yeah, totally. He's the man, and he he uh, works really hard to bring out the timely themes, and that's what I really appreciate about his work. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's interesting is there's not even unanimity uh, in the Fed on this point. Today, we had Federal Reserve Bank uh, President John Williams uh, coming out and saying, we're not there yet. We're still far from the goals of maximum employment and stable prices. Uh, yesterday, uh, Dallas Fed President uh, Kaplan, President Robert Kaplan, uh, came out saying the opposite. Uh, President Kaplan not on the FOMC this term, of course, uh, the president of the New York Fed, uh, along with the chair of the Federal Reserve, uh, always on the FOMC as a voting member. That's right. You know, I don't think that they have a, uh, I think that they probably have a fixed playbook, but they are definitely getting caught sending out some conflicting signals. I mean, I think that the market might take a little bit more time to adjust from this to this call by Janet Yellen, especially because what we saw today was a dramatic reappearance of that sort of reopening inflationary rotation that we've seen, Ash. And I think that that is literally one of the most important takeaways. You know, you've got the Treasury Secretary coming out and saying, just even uttering raising rates and what happened in the markets today, everything tech got mauled, right? It, it didn't matter. Everything technology was down two to 3% on the day, all the subsectors, the queues, everything. What rallied on the day today? Today, we had XME, industrial metals and mining, basic materials, banks, lumber, industrials, and home builders, and energy all rally today. So mm. this is, once again, the natural resources sector is saying, 
it's interesting that you may talk about raising rates, but I think the commodity sector has already gotten the joke as to what's going on, where the tech sector has been way out in front and is going to probably suffer a setback if they are even thinking about raising rates or if the bond market prices yields a little bit higher than it is now. Yeah. And of course, for our viewers, this all comes as no surprise, something that you've been talking about for some time on the basic materials side. You know, Ash, this is the kind of this this is the time for us where we're in the power curve of the trade. We've been talking about it until we're blue in the face for months now. And I still think, you know, look at look at the situation. She did not do anything to calm this commodity rally. You know what I mean? We saw steel stock stage a new breakout today. Corn traded a new high today. So if she's trying to throw some cold water on the commodity rally, she's going to have to come up with a lot more stronger language than saying that they may have to raise rates to stop the overheating economy, which is maybe a little bit more difficult to build a case for that this economy is overheating. Yeah. I'm also curious. Uh, obviously, we are in this unusual position now uh, of having a, a chair of uh, the Secretary of Treasury who had formerly served very recently, in fact, in the last term uh, as chair of the Federal Reserve. I wonder if this is something that's coordinated. Is it like a good cop, bad cop sort of thing? Uh, or is it the kind of thing where, uh, you know, Chair Powell got blindsided? I would tend to think that's not the case. Uh, but again, you really don't know. No, we don't know, but we do know what the Federal Reserve and the central banks are up to, right? We do know their general game plan is that, broadly speaking, over time, their job has to been keeping rates low or pinned at zero for the long as they possibly can. Right. That's why, you know, listening to Janet Yellen, who was Fed chair for four years and never raised rates, come out and say that they may have to raise rates is something totally different. But I believe, Ash, that they wanted to give a very Batman and Robin-y type of look right. to, to where all the stimulus and the accommodation is coming from. It comes better. It comes off better from a familiar face. We just had Janet Yellen directing Fed policy. What better steward of the Treasury message than Janet Yellen, right? It's the same talking head talking about easy money. Jerome Powell, who just wasn't even thinking about raising rates, now he's got a sidekick who's got the same sort of attitude, and they're probably going to talk about transitory inflation and trying to keep rates down for as long as they are in those two seats. So that's a very interesting one-two combo for me. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah, it really is. And it's an interesting time to be watching uh, these markets. And for people uh, who may not be following this as closely uh, as you are, Tony, let's give a little bit of a context. We glossed on it a bit a few moments ago. But the bigger picture, what we're really talking about here in terms of inflation, in terms of your perspective on what's happening with general price levels right now. Yeah, well, we've got, you know, call it there's two sides of it. There's, you know, the way the the inflation data is set up. There's the inflation that's going to directly affect the, affect the consumer and inflation that's directly affecting the corporation. The corporation likely to get affected first because they are the ones procuring these raw materials whose prices are going 
off the upper right hand corner of the screen right now. So if you listen to some of, you know, one of the really interesting things, Ash, that came out this morning was Bank of America saying that we may be in a phase of transitory hype. Oh, no. What did they call it? Excuse me. Bank of America came out this morning and talked about transitory hyperinflation, right? And so that was a new term that sort of gets you to open, oh, um, what was the exact term? Or temporary hyperinflation, that's what they said. And so that's a term that sort of opens your mind and you go and drill down and see how did they come up with that term? And what they are doing is they're measuring the number of times the word is inflation is mentioned on corporate conference calls. And on certain on a certain weekly matrix, that word inflation was used up eight hundred percent, right? So there are CEOs of major corporations out there that are now noticing that their raw materials costs have gone through the roof, and at some point they're going to pass it on to the consumer, right? That much we know. So the industrial side right now is probably sort of very neatly getting tidied up and tucked into the costs of you know all kinds of new construction. Whereas on the CPI side, for the consumer side, we've got the cost of gasoline and the cost of corn, which is going to eventually trickle down into our food costs, flying off the upper right-hand corner of the screen, Ash. So this stuff is really, you know, nothing feels transitory about this to me. It does feel a little bit hyperinflationary to me. And the other side of why I can take the stance and say that I think that we're heading toward inflationary times is because the argument on the other side is still standing right there. There are plenty of people out in the world, your Lacey Hunts and et cetera, et cetera, that still preach deflation, that say that this massive debt pile that we have is massively deflationary. And I can see that side of the argument. I just think that it's different this time because of the Fed balance sheet and because of what's going on with the dollar. Yeah, the Fed balance sheet, which we haven't spoken about, uh, you know, we're at uh, seven point, uh, looks like 7.8 trillion on the Fed balance sheet. This is expanded uh, for people who don't follow the macro side as closely. We basically were at a flat line uh, from about 2014, where we peaked in that phase of the cycle at around 4.3 trillion. This is the total uh, Fed balance sheet consolidated. Uh, and it started, it was basically rolled sideways to the right. Uh, for about four years, basically flat. And then it started to reverse as the uh, Fed began to unwind, uh, let some of those positions roll off. Uh, and we got down uh, to about $4 trillion again. Then, boom, COVID pandemic hits, $4.1 trillion rocket ship ride up to $7.8 trillion. Yeah. And so you leave out one minor side story in that when, and I'm glad that you mentioned that the balance sheet started to taper. Because yeah. if you remember, that was when Jerome Powell came in with a stiff upper lip and his chin right. out saying that we can afford higher yields and we can afford to start tapering the balance sheet. And I suspect, and I think some others in the market also agree with me, that that was the point when Donald Trump said, not on my administration are you going to taper the Fed balance sheet when for the last eight years you were just piling it on for the last president. And so right. he had, I think, had the Federal Reserve res reverse that operation yeah. slightly. And then we came in, as you said, to the lockdown, and then they piled everything on the balance sheet that they could in order to stem the slide of the financial markets. Well, that's exactly right. And if you look at the chart, this is WALCL on the Fred, uh, Fed database. Uh, you see that start to roll up incrementally, gradually, but begin to roll up uh, actually in September of 19. 
uh, obviously ahead of the pandemic, but then it goes just basically vertical uh, when you see it start to, to hit in, uh, in February. That's right, Ash. And when you come down to the fact that we just doubled the balance sheet last year, right? Mm. You and I have been state, you and I have been on the story that that was the biggest story in finance last year because we come back to it as it drives our inflation conversation. So for me, what I see on the screens happening right behind me there, that is the direct result of what happened when we bet, when we doubled the balance sheet from four trillion to almost eight trillion now. And if you have been um, what I call Felix Zuloft, which is uh, you know another an analyst in the market that Grant also interviewed, and yeah. this is somebody that's starting to plant the seed of thinking about forty to fifty trillion Fed balance sheet by the time all of the damage is soaked up and everything like that. So as we've discussed before, if the Fed balance sheet, maybe we don't get to 40 or 50 trillion, but we open our minds to that type of thinking. If the Fed balance sheet is going to continue to grow at this type of pace, if we are going to continue to hand out stimulus from the Treasury, if we're going to continue to hand out helicopter money, the balance sheet's going to get bigger, the dollar's going to go lower, and commodities are going to go higher. And it doesn't matter what Janet Yellen says just, just yet. Well, you know, it's so interesting. Uh, you mentioned uh, how uh, Jay Powell came in uh, with a stiff upper lip talking about basically uh, raising rates, unwinding the balance sheet. Uh, it's interesting. It seems like everyone wants to raise rates except for the Fed chair, the sitting Fed chair. Then you have uh, Janet Yellen, who exits from that role and suddenly is making the case, well, maybe we may need to start to hike and think about that at some point, right? I mean, it's really interesting. It's like the person who's in that seat, and I'm, I'm not saying this cynically, but the person who's in that seat, when they look at the data, whatever it is that they see, and we know that Jay Powell did not come into this role as a dove. We know he didn't come in saying, boy, what we really need to do is expand the balance sheet. He said the opposite. But when that man or woman gets into that chair and they're actually on the hot seat, it just seems as though it's 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 difficult for them to understand a way to begin to unwind or to normalize policy rates. Great point, Ash. You know, we we are tampering with potentially, you know, cutting the spigot off from this massive flow of liquidity. And as soon as you show the markets that you may be cutting off the spigot, you know, look what happens right now. It's everything tech. Okay, let's get rid of that. That's not going to help us in our portfolio if rates are going to rise. You know, the frontier markets, get rid of those. Those are not going to help us. The cannabis market, that, the uh, Bitcoin market's not going to help us as much if rates are going to rise. So, right. you know, a little bit of jawboning now, but like you say, we'll see what they have to say if the S&P backs off 500 points when they're talking about raising rates the next time. You know what I mean? So they play very well both sides of the sword there, you know? Cannabis is so Q1, Tony. Now it's psychedelics, man. You gotta get... Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm not going... I'm not, we're not going there. We're not going there. We're staying in the cannabis space. We're staying with the flour and the edibles and the CBD lotion and all the simple stuff. I'm kidding. There's obviously... This is an industry that is obviously just at the beginning uh, of its growth trajectory as, uh, as more and more states begin to legalize. Uh, but let me throw one other thing out there while we're talking about the corporate sector, Tony, because I'd like to get your opinion on this. This was data that I saw today coming out of Refinitiv uh, that I thought was pretty striking on earnings. Uh, up until Friday, this is for S&P 500 companies, 
87% of S&P 500 companies as of Friday had beaten their earnings compared to a historical base of 67%. So obviously, you know, it's more than half beat and there's a little bit of gaming maybe that goes on, but still from the baseline distinctly up. But this was the number that caught my eye, Tony. Back to 1994, again, same Refinitiv data set. The average earnings beat was 3.6%. This season, 22.8% above expectations. Do the trivial math, 22 spot eight over three spot six, 6.3x higher. That is an extraordinary statistic. Yeah, that's a big one, Ash. You know, well, we're going to have to figure out how to how to navigate that one. Um, but it looks to me like you know we're probably working against lower comps. It looks to me like yeah. you know the, the you know all of these corporates had time to sort of you know guide lower and then sort of build some upside surprises into their earnings. And this is just, you know, one of the reasons, one of the things that I turn to my friends who are bearish at these lofty levels and say, I know I understand things look overdone and you can be as bearish as you want, but did you see that 88% of the S&P just beat earnings by 20% or more, right? Like that's like you're in a market for securities that are overperforming expectations. So they're very hard to keep down under that scenario. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And some of this is obviously rebound effect from the devastation that we saw uh, coming out of the COVID crisis. Uh, but these these numbers are still extraordinary. And it speaks directly to uh, the point that you just made, which is uh, it gives you a certain context uh, for the pricing that we see in the market. Yeah, that's, a, that, that's all it does. That's all it does. And so we'll see how we proceed from here, Ash. All right, Tony, it's that time. Totally new segment, live questions from the audience. Very Bring cool. And they don't disappoint. These are all great questions. So the first one up is from Victor. Tony, do you trade correlations such as DXY against gold, or do you treat them separately? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that I use, it's fair to say that, that uh, gold is a security that I trade actively, whereas the dollar index is really just another um, data point on my speedometer for the markets, if you will. You know, the dollar index is something for me that I'll have a view on, but I'll kind of use my view on the dollar uh, to temper and to position in my commodity or gold trades as we were just directly discussing. So I don't really trade the dollar quite as much, and I kind of use that as a directional barometer for what uh, whether it supplies a headwind or a tailwind to my other trades. Directional barometer. I like that one. That's uh, fair. Next question comes to us from Tom. Tom, uh, Tony, do you think uh, they're going to think about raising rates by the end of the year? My guess is by October. So when do they think about it or think about thinking about it? I think that they keep threatening. I think that they keep the markets on their toes by continuing to threaten raising rates. I think that they may talk about raising rates quite a bit. And I think that it would take a small act of God at this point before they would actually raise rates. You know, I, I'm really leaning on the fact that the S&P is at 4,200. Uh, our ISM is at 60. And yet the Federal Reserve is still buying high yield credit from the markets and buying treasuries, you know, on 120 billion pace per month. So I really don't think that they are very 
serious about hiking rates. I think that they're reacting to what they're seeing in commodities and recognizing that if this gets out of hand, that they're going to look really freaking bad and trying to play some safe face game here. But I think that it's not going to be calendar 21 that you're going to see a rate hike. No. Yeah. Interesting. And, and, uh, and a bold statement there. And maybe That's this is some, opinion. and maybe this is some of the uh, kind of, uh, I don't know what you want to call it. Dove cop Hawk cop that we see uh, from uh, uh, Mr. Chairman and Madam Secretary. That's right. That's right. Um, here's one that comes to us uh, from uh, Andrew Hodge. Any thoughts on real rates, real rates in various inflation scenarios? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, we, we can break it up and talk about it in all different denominations, right? But I think the most important thing to look at is, you know, real rates, obviously the yields minus inflation, right? We are in a very inflationary environment. If you're looking at break-evens, if you're looking at forward forwards, if you're watching the yield curve, I think that that's where, you know, the most indicative bond market um, barometers are, if I may. So I've been watching those to help my trading, um, you know, a little bit more than I've been watching real rates, to be quite honest with you. And I know that there's an effect that goes on there. But the broad effect that I'm seeing is break evens continue to trade higher. They're potentially breaking through historical technical levels. And I think that this is what the Federal Reserve is finally landing on their radar screen that they're going to have to adjust. And if expectations for inflation continue to spiral out of control, it may force their hand a little earlier. But I still think that they're going to continue to jawburn versus, jawbone versus actually hiking rates right now. If that's fair to answer that real rates question, I don't know if it was a direct answer, but that's my answer. Yeah, it's great context for the way that you think about these markets and how you think about these rates. Um, here's one that comes to us uh, from Robert Martin. Uh, any chance the EU uh, or ECB uh, raises rates in response to what happened today? I guess the question more generally uh, might be, uh, how does Europe factor into the equation and what some of the monetary policy actions that we've seen coming out of the ECB might be? Doves for life. Doves for life. I mean, from with Christine Lagarde, you know, Mario Draghi talking about the reopening now. That's nice. Christine Lagarde heading the ECB. I mean, I don't see her acting in or prepared to act hawkishly in any way, shape, or form. So I think that they're going to continue to kick the can to not raise rates. And unless there is an extreme, you know, an extreme spike in the commodity complex, I think they're going to blow it off as long as they can. Right. Boy, these are such great questions. Uh, this one comes to us from Kay Sherman. Kay Sherman, if the inflation narrative is really taking hold, how do we explain gold's stagnant performance? And how seriously should we be considering BTC as an inflation hedge? Great question. Great question. I mean, that's the question plaguing the markets right now, right? It's like everybody's got their eye on Bitcoin and they want to know if they should be in this thing but it looks so expensive and it doesn't back off, right? So I have noticed that I feel because we've had so much selling of the gold GLD ETF and we've seen total gold ETF holdings go down from 110 million ounces to below 100 million ounces. If you ask me, there was some kind of a VWAP program going on where somebody was actually selling gold in order to buy cryptocurrency. 
And I think that there was some kind of an allocation change that was starting to go through the markets over the last couple of months because it would have taken an act of God to have total gold ETF assets tick higher. We just went through a couple of weeks where gold kind of bobbled back and forth, mostly sold off. But even in the weeks when gold bounced, total gold ETF holdings were going down. So somebody was dramatically, dramatically lowering a position that they had in GLD. And I think that eventually, I think we might be there, but it feels like that is going to run its course. And then I think gold is going to jump to the forefront as a great inflation hedge, just like it always has been. But just remember, we just went through a period right now, excuse me, not right now, I guess in the last two weeks, where the dollar saw a nice retracement bounce. And gold kind of held its own on the dip while the dollar bounced. So with that little dynamic in my pocket, I'm going to say that gold is going to start outperforming um, some of the other commodities and maybe even Bitcoin in the next several weeks to months. Interesting. Interesting. And by the way, just because we're live and we can finally do this live price quotes, I love doing this. Gold right now uh, at 1779 spot, 82 per ounce off from the high. It looks like in August, uh, early August uh, of 20, uh, it looks like it about 20, uh, 2050, about 2050 bucks an ounce uh, on the high going back to August. Uh, boy, these questions just keep getting better and better. Stephen P., uh, to you, Tony, do you trade options? And if so, what strategies? I do. I keep it super, super, super simple. I am usually either buying a sort of, you know, one month to three month call option on things that I'm bullish and keeping it really, really simple. Um, I'm trying to only buy call options like I have done when the VIX backs off so that I'm not getting clobbered with volatility. Um, if I'm wrong on both sides of the trade where the security sells off and volatility, expands on me. <clears throat> so I'm trying to buy options when the VIX is on this dip below 20 here. And on occasion, and I haven't done this in a long, long, long time, if I sense that the S&P is going through a traumatic time, and I will buy like a very short-dated put option. Um, but usually those are kind of thing where I'll come in on Monday and look to buy some protection for the week or buy a downside S&P put for the week um, to sort of pad some of my losses as a hedge, or if I'm flat as a aggressive short strategy. But I really don't trade options all that often. I prefer way, way more to use cash and only cash in my trading. And so that that's um, I would I would say probably one out of every fifty of my trades is an options trade, but they do happen. Uh, here's a great question uh, from Mark. Do you think that there's a red line that commodities cross that warrants the Fed to basically force their hand to have to raise? Ooh, you know, that's a great question. I don't know if there's a red line, but I will say that they have to be, have to be cognizant of the obvious commodity, of the magnitude of the, the obvious magnitude in the commodity rally since, for example, Biden was elected, right? Because to me, that was the beginning of the inflation flame. You know, you see a president come in and say that he is all about, you know, the green revolution, and then he goes in ahead and cancels an XL pipeline uh, so that we can transport crude oil and crude oil products by train and truck using gasoline, and the price of gasoline go up 80%. 
you know there's something dramatically wrong with what he's trying to accomplish by closing that pipeline, right? So since the Biden administration has taken over, we've seen gasoline and gas prices explode. We, whether it's coincidental or not, we saw the end of a 10-year bear market in grains, and now grains prices are exploding. So I just think that it's really, really obvious that the Federal Reserve has to be noticing what has gone on in the last five months since we were, call it six, seven months since we elected a new president, a new administration, and a new posture towards the world. So I think that's really important to keep an eye on. I don't know if there's a specific number, but I mean, when we start heading toward $5 gasoline at the tank, that's going to wake up everybody. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah, very well said. Uh, another one from Tom Tom, because it's such a good question. Tony, if you were to put new money into the market right now, which sector would you Next buy? Next question. Go. No. <laughs> Go ahead. Explain why. Explain no, I'm sorry. why. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you ass. No. But that was my part, part of the response. Uh, but explain why. This is the S&P uh, uh, spider for metals and mining. Talk a little bit about why you're so bullish. Yes. Okay. I will talk about that because I was just asked that question. And that's why I had an answer at the ready. I actually just did a podcast with somebody that held my hand to the fire and was like, all right, let's hear it. Give me your next best three ideas. Like you got to put them on the tape right now. And so <laughs> I had already thought about that a little bit. And I'm the guy that's noticing, like, I, I love being long commodities for the dollar move lower. So, um, I'm, I'm trying to pick away and figure out, you know, and if I'm, if I have the right exposure, to, to all of the different sectors of commodities. But XME, my big trade there is, I think that between precious metals, base metals, and steel, which are all included in XME, I think that we've got a beautifully bullish cocktail for all three of those sort of subsectors of industrial metal. I think the green revolution is going to try to consume more natural resources than we have available in the metal space. And I think that's going to be wildly inflationary. And I think it's really interesting that we're stepping up to the plate now to a new paradigm in markets as we push towards, you know, um, carbon capture and we push towards more wind and solar. And LME copper is 10K bid, the all-time high, about to get cooking through. And so for me, I mean, I can't even open up my mind to think what the price of copper might be if the Fed keeps expanding their balance sheet, if the dollar keeps going lower, I mean, 15, 15K LME, 20K LME copper, all within the realm of reason. And because of, I think it has that potential explosive upside, that's why I like the industrial metals and mining ETF. 10X, extraordinary. Is that fair? Yes. I mean, look at the data. That's pretty extraordinary. That's where we're headed. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, with the breakout in steel today confirms it, new highs in iron ore, great performance in iron ore, great performance across the base metals uh, complex. We've got the London Metals Index, the LMEX, heading toward the sort of historic peak at, I forget which price, but as a technician, 
you know, you look at someone, if you're, if you're on the corporate side and you're a consumer of base metals and you look at that London metals index coming up on an all time high about to break through, I think you basically get on the phone with your metals guys and buy as much as you can before it goes through there. Because if it goes through there, you're going to be shit out of luck. I want a metals guy. Yeah. You want a guy, you want, you need an LME broker, Ash. That's all you need. You need a real-time LME broker so you can call up and get some info. <laughs> Absolutely. Tony, we're not supposed to be having this much fun. I don't think I know this is, they'll permit it. I know. Maybe we'll have a couple cocktails next time. Uh, absolutely. Listen, I have to ask you here as we uh, as we come to the close here, uh, Dogecoin. It is just it's everywhere when you look at the uh, you look at the comments scrolling by in uh, YouTube. Look right now, I'm looking at a chart of jo of Dogecoin uh, on a log scale that looks like a linear chart. I mean, it's just insane. It's just it's just completely explosive growth. Uh, you know, we're we're looking here at about fifty six cents as the last bid. Uh, I'm seeing, uh, you know, this is this is just absolutely extraordinary. What are your thoughts on Doge? Look, we're doing this for Ed Harrison, right? Let's let's just get it out of the bag. Ed Harrison asked for our view, and so let's give it to him because I am not a Dogecoin nor mm. crypto expert. So it's amazing right. that somebody even wants to hear my opinion. What do I think of Dogecoin? I think it's Ben and Jerry's ice cream. <laughs> That's what I think. I think it's Ben and Jerry's ice cream, right? Everybody's got money to buy ice cream right now. And Ben and Jerry's has got the cutest logo in the whole freezer, right? Just like everybody's got stimulus checks to buy cryptocurrency right now because they're going to the moon. And Dogecoin has got the cutest branding of all of the cryptocurrencies. So everybody is buying the Dogecoin, which, as I understand it, was essentially a meme coin. Like, I, I, as right. I understand it, it was created by two guys that almost made it up as a joke, right? There, there's no, as I, and again, as I understand it, because I am not an expert, Ash, in Dogecoin, but as I understand it, there is no use case. There's no platform built on top of Dogecoin that's got new consumers wanting to buy that currency in order to participate on whatever value platform they're offering. So I, with something that has no practical use case, with something that, um, you know, is literally was created as a main coin and has a little doggy on the cover of it. I mean, I wouldn't go near that thing with a 100 foot pole, but that's just me. This is great. I'm looking at the comments here scrolling by in real time. Uh, Prius Omega, I want to hear your opinion on Doge because you are not a crypto guy. And I think yeah. that's very well said. And it gets to the point. Look, I'm looking at a chart right here. Uh, three leading zeros before the first fractional penny uh, going back four years on Dogecoin. Exactly as you said, created as a joke. Uh, as a meme, uh, 55 cents right now, orders of magnitude higher uh, in, a, in, a, in a short period of time. Uh, going back before this breakout, really in January, uh, at spot zero, zero, eight cents on Doge. Look, here's the thing. I've thought about this a fair amount, and the reality is I have never, ever seen a use case for Dogecoin. I have never heard a cogent, articulate argument uh, that showed that there was any competitive advantage to Dogecoin uh, compared to anything else in the space. That said, two important provisos. 
Number one, uh, in the meme stock world, in the meme coin world, it's impossible to say for certain when you get this much pickup, this much price action, and this much surge uh, in total market capitalization or network value, what becomes of a coin, right? It's like if you were making the argument about GameStop and you were thought it was, the valuations were silly, you had to be a maniac to get on the other side of that trade because it becomes something that seeps into the public consciousness. And who knows? Maybe GameStop uh, gets the, they're able to raise more money. They're able to do this. They're able to do that. Basically, everything is on the table uh, when you get that degree uh, of flow coming in to whether it's a, a meme stock or a meme coin. The second thing I would say uh, is I have been long-term secularly bearish, and I don't usually make these statements about coins, but because it just seems to me uh, that there's just no use case, there's no fundamental value. I've been bearish on this uh, since uh, since January, since the run began in its earliest phases. That said, if I had to guess where we were going to be in two weeks from today, my guess would be higher. <laughs> I mean, no question. No question. I've been saying this every time. You know, Ed Harrison and I have been having this conversation, and every time he says, "Where is it going?" I'm bearish. Where is it going? Higher. There's just momentum, and you know, for whatever reason, I have a friend who uh, told me uh, earlier today that it was in her YOLO fund. Yeah, it's in my YOLO fund. I'll throw a couple of bucks in, and whatever happens, happens. And if it goes to zero, so what? And I think that there are a lot of people who are thinking uh, about Dogecoin that way today. Sounds like a great explanation to me, Ash. I mean, that covers it. You know, and, and it, it, it seems like a total phenomenon of 2021, you know, liquidity overload. You know, this is like a different form of the banana duct tape to the wall for $100,000 at Miami Art Basel. Right. It's a different form of the $70 million Tony, JPEG. Tony, at least you can eat a banana. That's true. You can rip the banana right off the wall, take the duct tape off, peel it, and you're good. Yeah, I see JD. The use case is speculation. I mean, look, there, this is, you know, it's just such a spot on. The use case is let's play greater fool theory with a lot of money and a lot of people involved on a network, right? Like if you're a corporation, how about Ash? You're the corporation that decides, you know what, let's take Dogecoin, right? Like that, those are the people that are empowering the greater sure. fool theory to game to keep going. So if the corporation decides that it's going to value Dogecoin and say, you know what, we'll take Dogecoin for our products in return, even though they've got no backdoor use for the Dogecoin, that doesn't matter. That's going to create more of a demand for Dogecoin for whatever to use whatever they're, you know, to exchange for whatever they're selling. So, yeah. you know, there, there's going to be promulgations of these types of, you know, what feel or look like speculative type scams or something like that. And I know I probably piss off a couple of crypto creator, traders by calling Dogecoin a scam, but I don't really know what else to call it. I, I don't know what to call it either. I don't think it's a scam, uh, but that doesn't mean that there's necessarily inherent value there. Look, if you want to buy tickets for the Mavericks, uh, Mark Cuban will take your Doge. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And he's the one that's saying that it's a, you know, that is, uh, he's participating and applying basically the greater fool theory to a new currency. Yeah. So he's like, yeah, the more people pile into this thing, sure, I'll take it. If people are going to, you know, if there's still a price, I can liquidate it. Why not? Right. You know, so it's, it's being opportunistic in the crypto space, if, if that's a fair way to put it. Yeah. And Mark Cuban's a brilliant guy. He's been opportunistic in the past. He's got a lot of wins. But I would say this, uh, if Dogecoin goes to zero, uh, Mr. Cuban is not going to have a hard time paying his rent. 
Yeah, exactly. Right. So what has he got to lose? Yeah. You know what I mean? Tony, this was so much fun. I don't see how we can ever go back to not doing these live. No, it's got to be live. It's got to be live. I, lo- I love the questions. I love the frenetic pace. It, it just feels better. Yeah, the questions were awesome. This was just fantastic to, to be able to do this and have the live flow uh, coming into us the whole time. Just an incredible, uh, incredible 45 minutes. Tony, thank you so much for joining us. Ash, thanks for having me, man. I can't wait to be on again. And I get to say to the audience today, not just thank you for watching, but thank you for participating. This was a lot thanks of fun. Thanks for tuning in. Absolutely. Really cool format, man. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.